You guys sing great when you have something great to sing about. Amen? And so the Lord is glorified. That's a great thing. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for just sending your Son to die on the cross for us, but that he didn't stay there, that he rose from the grave, and that we can have eternal life through him. Lord, we thank you for that, and we lift you up because of it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, we're studying heroes of the faith. And, and today's hero, I, I think the weather that we've had outside today is, is a perfect introduction to the hero of the day. We're going to talk about Noah, right? Perfect way to start the day when you think about it. And, and uh, we're looking at, at, at the faith of Noah. Now, most of us are probably familiar with the story of Noah, correctly? Uh, correct? Uh, we've, we've heard it. We've probably heard it since we were children in Sunday school. How many have been believers long enough or in church long enough to have heard the story since they were kids? All right. Wow, that's a lot. That's a lot of you. And so, uh, so we're probably familiar with it. However, you're all adults now, right? Well, well most of you are adults now. Uh, so I wasn't talking about Alan Troop. I meant the rest of you. No, I'm just kidding. And, uh, but uh, no, here we are. We're, we're adults now. We're going to actually look at what the Bible has to say, not just, the, not just the parts of the story that they tell you when you're children. Sound good? And we're going to start that by looking at the writer of Hebrews. So uh, if you can turn to Hebrews chapter 11, and we'll, we'll look at verse 7. And make sure you keep a, a finger or a piece of paper in Hebrews 11, but we'll also go to Genesis chapter 6 and 7 as well. Um, so we're going to be back and forth between the, those two passages, so keep something there so you can get back and forth quickly. But we'll look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. And this is what we read. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So here we see the difference between, uh, between total destruction on one hand or total salvation on the other hand. And it, all of it come, boils down to one simple word, and that word is faith, right? And if we connect this to what we, we've been reading in chapter 10 and in uh, verse 38 and 39 about how the just shall live by faith, but not the type of faith that draws back, but the, that leads to perdition, but the type of faith that leads to the saving of the soul. And we see an example of that in Noah. And so we see how uh, the absence of faith led to total destruction, and yet faith itself uh, led to the saving, not just of him, but of his, of his entire family. So let's take a look at what the writer of Hebrews is talking about in its original context. So keep a finger here in Hebrews chapter 11, but now let's uh, look at the condition of Noah's world, and we find this in Genesis chapter 6. So if you could turn to Genesis, first book of the Bible, chapter 6, and we'll read the first four verses there. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men, or saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of, of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. 
Well, when we read these first four verses, I, I would say these are four of the most mind-boggling verses in Scripture. Anyone else with me there? I mean, you read this and you say, what in the world is going on? And here we are trying to, to, to wrap our minds around what's going on in these four verses, but we get this idea that what's going on in, in these four verses, this pre-flood world, is so foreign from the world we live in today that we have a, a, a very, we, we struggle to, to wrap our minds around what was going on here. Isn't that true? And we, in fact, we ask ourselves a lot of questions. And as, as much as these are declarative sentences like most in, in the scriptures, but yet we find they end up causing us to ask more questions. And, and the, the principal question that I find is, well, who are the sons of God and who are the daughters of men, right? I mean, and, and then where, where do these giants come from? Where, where, how does this fit into the picture? And, and we look at this and it's a very, it's a very interesting uh, thought. And the sons of God and the daughters of men. Well, there are three basic theories, and I want to walk through them quickly. There are three basic theories of who they are. These sons of God that saw the daughters of men, married them, and that God was so upset by it that he said, I'm going to destroy the entire world, right? So we look at this, and we find three theories that have come up. If you look at all the commentaries, they boil them down to these three. These three. Number one, the godly line of Seth. See, in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, and uh, we, if you remember the story, Cain was the son of Adam, and he killed Abel, right? And then God gave, uh, gave Adam Seth instead. And so when we look at the genealogy in chapter 5, it's the genealogy through the line of Seth. And so the, so the idea behind this is that the sons of God may have been God's way of talking about the, the godly line of, of Seth, and that the daughters of men are, are the line of Cain. And so the intermarriage was between the believers and the unbelievers and and uh, a couple of arguments for that. One is that both Enoch and Noah in the genealogies are said to have walked with God. And both of them are in the line of Seth. We also find that in the New Testament, uh, we find that the sons of God oftentimes refers to believers, right? Those who are, who are believers. Uh, just, I'll just use one. This is 1 John 3, 1, where it says, Behold what manner the love... Uh, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called what? The sons of God. Who's that talking about? Believers. And so this, this is uh, one of the concepts out there. A, a second uh, theory is that the sons of God are kings. See, in ancient Near Eastern cultures, oftentimes kings, a slang term for referring to a king was to call them uh, son of God or um, sons of a, of a God. An example of that uh, would be like pharaoh who was called the son of ra and and so the idea behind this theory is that maybe the kings left their station of of being this this higher class and intermarried with the common folks and so on that's one of the theories and uh, and, and that god was upset by that the third theory is the theory of the fallen angels the idea that actual angels left their stations in heaven and they saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they intermarried with women, and that that was the result um, of giants. And you see, sometimes in Scripture, angels are referred to as sons of God. Uh, none more, uh, more than in the book of Job, all through the book of Job. And I'll, I'll just use in Job chapter 38, you might remember when God is addressing Job, and he said, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. 
And then he explains, uh, uh, and he talks about the creation. He's saying, where were you at creation? And in his describing this in verse 7, he says, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the angels that were around him. And we get this image of God creating the world and the angels just cheering him on saying, wow, God, this is awesome. Look at what you're creating. And they're called sons of God. So angels are oftentimes called sons of God. And so the idea then is that the angels left their stations in heaven. They lusted after women and, and, uh, and intermarried with them. And the result was that there were giants in the land. So when you look at these three options, um, I just want to say, and I want to preface what I'm about to say with this. All three of these are acceptable views. All right? If you've studied this issue and you come out with, uh, with one view and another person comes out with a different view of who the sons of God were, then we're still all welcome to, to be together in the same church. Amen? This is not one of those issues that you divide over, right? Uh, however, I do want to share with you what I believe it is and why I believe that. Does that sound fair? If you disagree with me, you don't have to, uh, you don't even have to email me if you're just content. If you want to talk about it, I'd be glad to talk about it and I might change my view. But uh, here's, here's what I think. Number one, I would say I do not believe that it's the godly line of Seth. I, I don't believe that that's the case. And here's why. The entire argument is built upon a shaky assumption, really. Two, two shaky assumptions, really. One, that because, because two men in the line of Seth walked with God, that therefore everyone in the line of Seth must have walked with God. Right? Now, you if, if just take the, the seven generations uh, uh, from, from Adam uh, on down to Enoch. Even. In seven generations, is it possible for one person to walk with God and maybe a child or a grandchild or a, the child of a great-grandchild to not walk with God? Has anyone ever known that to happen? Okay. So that, to me, that's a shaky assumption that everyone in the line of Seth uh, was walking with God. And the other assumption is that everyone in the line of Cain did not walk with God. And have you ever seen God go into a family where maybe there's a long history of people who did not believe in God and God steps in and saves someone out of that family? Have anyone, anyone seen that before? And, and probably if we all looked in our histories, that's true somewhere in all of our families. And so to me, that's a little bit of a shaky foundation. Is it plausible? Sure. Is it likely? I, I don't think so. Another problem I have with that is that this whole discussion of giants would make no sense. Like, where did the where do the giants come from? It's just, and why is it mentioned here in Genesis 6 if it isn't somehow connected to what he's talking about in Genesis 6? Secondly, I would say, I don't personally believe that it's kings. First, because the Bible never follows the ancient Near Eastern tradition of calling kings son of God. You see, maybe the ancient Near Eastern people started calling kings sons of gods. Why? Because they actually believed they were sons of gods. For example, Pharaoh, son of Ra, right? We, 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 the Bible doesn't, doesn't follow that tradition. Why? Because I think this idea of kings being superior and, and, and leaders being superior to those underneath them, that's a human idea, isn't it? In fact, another reason I would say that I, I don't personally believe that is I don't think it would have been a sin for a king to marry a commoner, right? I mean, when the theory came out, it may have not have been 
culturally popular, but I don't see that. Nowhere in Scripture do we get the idea that people from kingly lines are more godly or more important and should never intermarry with commoners. In fact, if you look at Jesus, was he born in a kingly line? Yes, he was. Was he born in a humble way? Yes, he was. And so we see, even in Christ, it's not so much uh, the, the status of a person that makes them important. As well as, here, this too, kings intermarrying with commoners and the result being giants. I don't see that from what I understand of science. Someone would have to enlighten me on that, right? Uh, I don't see how that would, would work. Here's what I do believe. I do believe, personally, that it's talking about fallen angels. Here's why. Not simply because of the process of elimination. But first of all, this would be a grievous sin. Think about it. God, God created angels and gave them their roles in the heavens and for them to come down and say, we are going to leave our roles. We're going to leave what you've called us to do. Uh, to, to interact in an intimate way with a, with a species not our own. That's a problem. It, it would be a grievous sin. A couple other reasons. Number one, when you look at the, the, the book of Jude, remember how we, when we studied the, uh, Enoch, Jude quoted Enoch? Remember that? If you go in the same exact context, because there's really only one context to the book of Jude. It's one chapter and it's short, right? But if you go to verse 6, this is what we read. It says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now this was written in the same context that he's talking about Enoch. And, 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 and when Enoch said in verses, uh, I think 17 and 18, where he said, Enoch said, Behold... The Lord is coming with his tens of thousands of saints to, put, to bring judgment on the ungodliness and the godlessness of the culture around. And so he quotes, quotes, uh, quotes the book of Enoch when he did that, actually. And, uh, and here we find in that same context that we find these words. Now, you could say, and, and, and I've heard argued, that that's talking about the angels at the time when they, when they just followed Lucifer and, and so on. But in the context here, it's found in the same, in the same exact context as we find Noah and Enoch. Um, so, so it, it's inter- I find it too interesting. Another reason why I would believe it is when Jude does quote Enoch, he quotes the book of Enoch. And if you actually read the book of Enoch, which I'm not saying is inspired, but I have a hard time believing that God would quote the, a book that is wildly fictitious without at least saying this is wildly fictitious. Does that make sense? And so uh, and in th- there, it's very clear that the entire story is about fallen angels who inter- intermarried with women uh, from the earth. And so, uh, so even though I don't hold the book of Enoch as at the same level as Scripture by any means, uh, the fact that God inspired you to quote it shows that at least I think it's based on a true story. So the point is this. Um, if, if Jude's quote is accurate, and we know that Jude's quote at least is accurate because it's in the Bible, then other parts of the story are likely based on true events, not necessarily inspired. Does that... Are we on the same page there? Okay. Um, I would also say it's, it's interesting that what Peter says. Peter is giving a, a little chronological retelling of, of history to make a point that God always punishes sin. And in the book of 2 Peter, verses, uh, or chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, this is what he wrote. He said, For if God did not spare angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world... 
but, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. So, and, and he goes on. He's walking through history showing how God punishes sin. And he puts this falling of the angels, not at the very beginning. He puts it in the middle of this, of this story, and he puts it right before what? Noah. Actually in the same sentence. So to me, this idea of connecting where the angels came and they did something that was, incompl- that was, that was wrong is found in the same context. He goes on to say then, um, in verse 9, he says, Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. He's saying this about Noah. He's saying, you see how God punishes evil and at the same time preserves his people. I don't know about you, but that's an encouraging message for me. When I look around us and I see the evil around us. That in spite of all the evil that's going on around us, we have a God who punishes evil, but yet at the same time preserves his people. Isn't that awesome when you think about that? And, uh, and so this, this is the, 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 the world that, uh, that, that he lived in, that um, Noah lived in. This is the condition of the world he lived in. But then he goes on from here to describe the, the, the context that, that Moses, or that Moses, that, that Noah lived in. And this is what he said. And listen to these carefully. Verse 5, Genesis 6. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I'll let that sink in for a moment. There's some strong language in that statement, isn't there? There, there are words that, that just push the idea. And you look at that, and, and, and it says that, first of all, let's talk about the wickedness of man. That's a strong word in itself. But then he says that every intent. What does that mean? Every intent of the thoughts and of his heart was only evil. Another exclusive word is only evil. Every intent was only evil. And not only that, it was that way continually. Boy, is that a great statement about the condition of mankind in the days of Noah? Wow, that is a strong statement when we think about it. At this point, I think we'd have to say they've, they've reached the entire, uh, the entire end of where, where our depravity leads us. Do you remember when we studied the book of Romans and we talked about the, the spiral, the downward spiral of the depravity of man? And we, we talked about how mankind, uh, by, by God's design, we were image bearers of God. And we were the ones that God created. And so now creation is very good. And we, 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 we reflect the image of God. And we start that way. But through ignoring God and pretending that he doesn't exist, we step away from that. And not only that, then we, we begin to, um, uh, to, to follow our impure our impure natures and we start following our natural desires and we indulge in our natural desires and when that comes to uh to to an end where we no longer get satisfaction out of that we we start moving towards unnatural desires by the way our culture's there already and we're talking about the days of noah but in a sense we're very close to be talking about in the days of us and then from there, it goes on to say that they, they went into complete inhumanity, totally not reflecting the image of God. This, what does that look like? It looks like this right here, where every intent of our hearts are always evil, continually. And this was the world in which God 
had Noah. Verse 6, he goes on to say this, And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and was grieved in his heart. Imagine that for a moment. God created all of creation. And at the end of every day, what did he do? He'd say, look, wow, this is good. This is good. Not until day six, he creates man and says, now this is very good. And I'm sure all of the sons of God, right, all of the angels around him were applauding, wow, this reflects your image, God. This is great. And this is the pinnacle. God was proud. He bragged on his own creation when he created mankind. And from Genesis 1 to now Genesis 6, short 2,500 years later, what is God saying? I'm sick of this. I, I, I am grieved in my heart that they even exist. Do you feel the gravity of those words? And we see that. Wow, we should feel that gravity. This is God dis- disgusted at, an, at, at, at the entire species. And so what does he do? Verse 7, he says this. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. Both man and beast, creeping thing and bird of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. God, sorry that he created us. Man, what heights, from what heights we have fallen as a species by the time of Noah. And, uh, and so but God has said he's going to destroy him and, uh, and start over. You see, there's a principle that we find in this. And, and what we'll find if you're taking notes, so there's a principle and then two, two punishments that we find. The principle is very simple. It's that our wickedness grieves the heart of God. And God's divine nature demands a just punishment. You know, sometimes we, we, we look at God and we want to see just his mercy and we don't want to see his justice, right? Or other times, we want to see God's justice, we don't want to see his mercy. And it usually has to do with what we're doing at the time. So when we're misbehaving, then we want to see God's mercy. But when other people are misbehaving and it affects us, then we want to see God's justice, right? But the truth is that God is 100% just, and yet God is, is merciful. And here we see that justice side of God very clearly, where he said, where he has to punish sin. The wickedness of man grieves the heart of God. And he has to have, it's, it's part of his divine nature, that he has to deal with sin in a just way. And there's punishments for it. What are the punishments that we find here? There's two. Uh, one right in this verse. We, we find, well, I call it Operation Clean Slate, right? Operation Clean Slate. Uh, the idea, just like we read in verse 7, so the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. He's saying, I am going to start over with a, a new, uh, start over new. And so God was going to destroy it all and start over with a clean slate. Uh, now, I don't know about you, but that's a scary thought, Right? When you think about that, that God would be so disgusted that he, that he was ready to, to do that. And the other punishment is actually something that we already read a few verses ago. So if you look back at verse 3, remember what God said, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed, indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Now this is an odd statement, right? When you think about that in the, in the context here, because prior to this, how long did people live? 
quite a bit longer, right? And so uh, the, the, I call this Operation Slowdown, right? And I'll explain why in just a second. But the idea is that God was going to reduce man's lifespan to approximately 120 years, being the high number, right? Now, not the average lifespan, but the, the high number of, of how long a person, based in their body, how long would a body last uh, more or less? Now, when you think about that, we go back just one chapter, we had a genealogy, which oftentimes we skip genealogies. Don't do that. Right? We find in this genealogy, pretty much in Genesis 5, everyone lived to be about approximately how long? Yeah, they were all in their 900s. Let's say approximately 1,000 years, right? And, and so everyone's living an awful long time in, in, uh, in Genesis 5. But from this point on, from Genesis 6 on, we begin to see a, a consistent decline in man's lifespan. Uh, in fact, if you go uh, forward to Genesis chapter 11, we find our next genealogy. And in our next genealogy, we find Shem. But Shem did not live a hundred, or 1,000 years. He did not live 900 years. He lived to be 600 years. If you skip forward to the next genealogy in, uh, gene- uh, in Genesis chapter 25, and verse 7, we have the genealogy with Abraham, and he lived to be 175 years. You see, it's markedly less than just than previous generations. You, you skip ahead then to chapter 47, and, and we'll find Jacob, who lived to be 147 years. And we see this continual decline. Genesis 50, which is one generation further, we have Joseph, who lived a full of years, it says, to 110. So he lived to be 110. Now, if we go past Genesis, if we go all the way to uh, the non-inspired Wikipedia, right? If you go to Wikipedia, you'll find Violet Brown right now as the oldest person that they know of that is alive, and, and she's 115 and going, right? 115 years old and going. And so basically what, what God said was about to happen we see happen. We see it take place. I did look at the last uh, 10 or so, and all of them died somewhere between the age of 116 and 122 when they died, being the oldest person known to, uh, alive at the time. And so we see it exactly as, as it works. And, and, and the way our bodies work, it's a, it's a fascinating way. Our cells, our cells will die and when they die, there are copies made of those cells, right? Now, I'm, I'm saying this in a pretty simplistic way, but basically, that's how our bodies work, right? And it uses the genetic information to do that. However, anyone who works with copy machines knows that when you make a copy of something, the copy is never quite as good as the original, right? And thus accounts for, for aging. I have an example here. I, have a, I found a picture. Anyone recognize this guy? No, you have no idea who it is, but we're going to say it's Jesus, all right? Because so, we don't know what he looked like exactly, but yes, we're gonna, we found this picture of, of Jesus. For those who can't uh, see from there, I put it up on the screen as well, and this is a picture of, of Jesus. But when you make a copy of that, the copy isn't quite as good. So this is a copy of the picture of Jesus. Does it look pretty similar from where you're at? And for those who can't see, I will uh, show you up there as well. Right, exactly. Now, what happens, though, if I don't copy the original, but now I copy the copy? All right, that's, it's going to be a little bit worse. And then if I copy the copy, it gets a little worse. And if you do that ten times, you know what you come up with? This. All right, this is the tenth copy, right? 
Uh, and this is the 10th copy of it. And uh, for those who can't see there, it, it's, it, you can see it up on the screen. Quite a bit different from the original, right? And then if you go to the 20th copy, this one is the 20th copy, right? It's hardly recognizable. In fact, I think some of you might think that's Charles Manson and not Jesus, right? And the ironic thing, if you do it 666 times, I don't know how it does this, but somehow it looks like this. Sorry, Alan, I had to. Alan was beginning to think I didn't like him anymore because I haven't made fun of him from the pulpit. Okay, so that last part was a joke, all right? Yep. But you see... Sorry, sorry, he's going to get me back for that one. I know it. But you know, we see that God did something, right? He did something uh, to slow down the process for us so that we don't live as long. And so those copies aren't quite as good as the original. And whereas the people pre-flood, they were going on to live for, for a thousand years, right? For us, 120 is really good, Right? And so if someone lives to be 120, you say, wow, that's amazing. And God did did this. Why, though? Why did he do that? I would suggest two two thoughts. Number one, to slow down the path of depravity. How long did it take mankind to go from being naked in the Garden of Eden to being so bad that God decided that he was going to destroy them? How long did it take? 2,500 years-ish, right? We can say ish, right? However, have we lived more than 2,500 years since the days of Noah? Yeah, we've, we've probably doubled that or more. It depends. There's some, there's some debates on, on some of that. But you know what? Um, we've gone a lot further, and yet we haven't gotten there yet. We haven't caught up to their level of depravity yet, even though I do think we're, we're scratching that surface. Does that make sense? We're scratching that surface. Um, and so I believe that God was slowing down that process of, of depravity. Now, how would that work? Um, imagine where we would be right now if people lived to be 1,000 years old. Think about that. Uh, compared to now, just think in terms of technology, for example. Uh, we, we spend the first 25 years, 30 years, and no matter where the technology is, we catch up to that in 25, 30 years, and then we can take it forward for, what, 20, 30 years, and, and then we retire, right? Imagine... Some of the guys who have accomplished some great things, and, and imagine if they were just getting started when they were 60, right? Just imagine if only our geniuses lived to be a thousand. Imagine, what if, if uh, Einstein lived to be a thousand? What if he was just getting started? Thomas Edison, what if he was just getting started? Or, or one of my favorite, whoever the guy is that invented Krispy Kremes. What if he was just getting started? Imagine how good our donuts would be right now, right? No, but you get the idea. It, things advance so much faster in that type of a, of a setting. And God says, you know what? I'm going to slow it down. I'm going to slow it down. And it's worked. It's worked. So God did something to our environment or to our bodies or whatever. Um, but to, that slows, slows us down. Just this morning, someone was asking me a question about this very thing. And, uh, and, I, and I shared how I saw on, on uh, TV one time where they were talking about one thing that's weird about the brain is that it has evolved a thousand years worth of memory, but it, do, it doesn't use it. So why, did the, why would the brain evolve, a, 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 why would the body evolve a brain that it can't use? 
And I, you know, I know the answer to that, right? Now, the problem isn't, it's like the brain is our hard drive. The, the hard drive is the problem. It's our motherboard that is the problem. Because some of you think, I can't remember a thousand years worth of stuff, right? Anyone like that? I forget sometimes what I ate for breakfast. So, uh, but that's, it, we see that the truth of God's word comes out when you study it. Well, why else? Why else would he do that? Here's another uh, reason I would suggest. One, to help us not lose sight of our own mortality. You know, when, when, we're, when we're young, we tend to think that we're going to live forever. I mean, as a teenager, sure, if you asked me, do you think you'll live forever? I would have said no. But in my mind, in, in my understanding of reality, I just, it, it's just not even on my radar screen. Anyone ever, ever feel that way when they were younger? Anyone that's older than their teens that doesn't feel that way anymore? Right? Uh, right. But if you are hundreds and hundreds of years out from, from your death, then it's not even really on your radar screen. And did you know that, that thinking about the, the mortality of our bodies is actually a healthy thing? That God commands us to do it. In Psalm 90 verse 12, it says, So teach us to do what? To number our days. Why? That we may gain a heart of wisdom. There's something about understanding that we only have a limited amount of time on this earth that gives us understanding. You know, and to come to a point where, I remember when I came to the point where I'm, like, I'm about as old as Jesus was when he was crucified. And I'm thinking, what did I accomplish so far? Right? Why? Because I'm numbering my days. I get to a point where, where now I'm already 20% of the way through my life. I'm just kidding there too. <laughs> I'm, I'm middle-aged, right? Assuming I would live uh, to be 90. And I think, wow, what have I accomplished so far? And, and I've got, only got so much time. That's a helpful thing, isn't it? And that's why in, in sports, a lot of times they put the clock somewhere where the athletes can see it because they need to know how much time do we have left to do what we need to do. And that changes the game plan sometimes. Helps them to do things in a wise way. And, and this is what God is telling us. And so, so the earth was so bad in Noah's day that God was going to destroy it and start over. And he was going to do it with a human being that was much closer to mortality than before. Uh, and... And when you look at this and you say, boy, Pastor Dave, this is a negative narrative, isn't it? Everything's going bad at this point. Talking about how bad mankind was. Uh, but then we come to the very next verse in Genesis chapter 6. And we read this. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the turning point of the passage. And yes, there's evil in the world. And yes, evil was taking place. Uh, and yes, God was talking about destroying but he was not talking about destroying and leaving things destroyed. He was talking about destroying and starting over. And, and he was preserving mankind as a species. And he did so in the person of Noah. And that begins in chapter 6, verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And how did he do that? We find that in the next verse. We read this. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And here, when you think about how evil the culture was around him, what does it say about him? It says that, number one, he was just. What does that mean? It means he treated people justly. He followed what we call the golden rule now, where you, know, you treat others the way you would want to be treated, and you put yourself on an equal plane so that you treat people justly. You don't treat yourself like you're above someone else, and you don't treat other people like they're so above you. You, you, you treat people justly, right? 
And that was what Noah did. He, he, still, he still treated people justly. And, and he lived in a sinful culture, and yet he still treated people justly. It'd be, it's very easy sometimes for us as Christians to say, our culture is so ungodly, people are down here, and we're up here. And that's why we have a hard time reaching people down there for Christ. When in reality, if we're going to be Christian, we need to do what Jesus did, who left his throne above, came down to our level, right? And we need to get our hands dirty and, 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 and get involved in people's lives and, and, and not say, I told you so, you know, but help them when, they, when they're struggling because of the results of their sin, right? This is Noah. He was a just man. It goes on to say he was perfect in his generations. By the way, perfect doesn't mean sinless, right? Perfect does not mean sinless. Perfect means complete, in fact, uh, the, I think the, if you were to, to give it a noun in English, the best way to describe this word would be integrity. The idea is, isn't that you, you never sin? Right? That's not what he's saying. We have one of those in Scripture. His name was Jesus. But Noah was a sinner, but yet he was a man of, of integrity. In other words, when he did fail, he fessed up to it and made it right. Right? And, and that's something we can do. But our, it's our pride that says, no, we need to give excuses. I think the best example of a contrast would be David and Saul. David did some, some really bad things. But man, his heart of repentance. And God says he was a man of integrity, a man whose heart was after God's own heart. Saul lost his kingdom. Why? Because he was constantly making excuses. Maybe, you know, if he threw insults at people, I think he would say it's just locker room talk. Can I say that? Instead of saying, you know what, this is, I need to, to fess up to the truth and be a man of integrity. And, and that means sometimes saying, I, I did what was wrong. I did what was wrong. And you know, how many of us would respect somebody more for admitting their mistakes? Don't we all? Because we all know we're, we're mistake makers. That's what we do. But not everyone is humble enough to... To, to deal with. That's, a, that's the, the idea of integrity, of being a perfect man. And then lastly, he says, Noah walked with God. He had a relationship with God. Now, before, before we just throw that off, like, yes, yeah, okay, he had a relationship with God. Remember the culture he was living in. And in spite of all the influences out there, he was influenced by his relationship with God. And, and the, he wasn't influenced by the world around him. He tried to influence the world around him. You see the difference? And that's the way we ought to be as well. Well, this is a good place to go back to our key verse in Hebrews. Look, if we look back at Hebrews, the first half of the verse, this is what we read. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things uh, not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his soul, or of his, ho- of his household, excuse me. And we read about that in, in Genesis six thirteen through, through 15. Uh, this is what we read. It says, and God said to Noah... The end of all flesh has come before me. The earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. And then he goes on and describes how the ark is to be made. And so we see what Hebrews 11 says is is exactly what took place in Genesis. And then Hebrews Uh, 11.7, the second half of the verse, we read this. By which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. So here we see both the condemnation of evil and we we see the salvation of the righteous. And we we find that in Genesis exactly as he said it. And behold, I myself 
and bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, God said to Noah. And you shall go into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of, of the earth and its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take this for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. You know, anyone here think those are strange directions? Put yourself in Moses' shoes for a moment. Or Moses, I keep saying that. Noah's shoes. Uh, Moses didn't wear shoes usually, right? He, was, he wore sandals. But Noah is living in a culture that is going that is so far. Everybody's evil all the time. And God says, here's what I'm going to do. I want you to build an ark. Now remember what we learned from Genesis as well, that there had been no rain in the land. At that point, the way the earth was designed, however God had it, there was a morning mist that would come through to make sure all the plants were watered, right? And, and, and it, th- it, was, it would thrive under that atmosphere. And yet, God says, build a boat. Here, Lord? How about by the ocean? No. Build it where you're at. And I'll bet people made fun of him don't you? How long is it going to take, Lord? Uh, just start building. Took him a long time. Read about it. I'll let you read it on your own. Took him a long time. Longer than any of us have ever lived. So imagine all this time, people are looking at him and saying, why on earth are you building this boat so far away from water? And he'd have to say, well, God told me that rain is coming. Rain? It hasn't rained here in forever. Literally. Weird directions. And how, how would you respond to that? I mean, it, it, we oftentimes just think, boy, God tells us to go witness, and I hate to talk to people about God, and, so I, and we don't do it. And yet God is telling Noah to do something very strange. And what do we find in the very next verse? Thus Noah did. According to all that God commanded him, so he did. Noah did exactly what God told him to do. That's, that's faith. You know, when you look at Noah, had faith. And you know what? We know the story. I'm not going to read the entire story in chapter 7 and 8. But what we know is that Noah did build the ark. He put his family on there. God brought the animals to the ark. They came onto the ark. And he did send a flood, didn't he? It came. And, and it destroyed, destroyed the world. And, and there he was. He lived. In fact, this is what we read in, uh, in uh, chapter 7, verse 23. So he, talking about God, he destroyed all living things that were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Then we read this in verse 1 of chapter 8. Then God remembered Noah. So we see God in, in, in his, his justice punishing sin. But we also see this mercy of God now. And then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind pass over the earth and the waters subsided. And so from this point, there's a turning point in the, in the Noah narrative and we begin to see the waters 
receding over time. And it took time as the waters receded and God provided for them. But what we see is a man of faith. Noah was a man of faith. Imperfect man. We read about one of his sins shortly after he puts his feet on dry ground again. But he was a man who had faith. But we also see a God who is faithful. We see a God who keeps his word. No matter how foreign it might seem, his directions might seem to us, no matter how odd they might be, in the moment, in the end, God proves himself faithful. No matter what he asks us to do. What about you? I'm going to ask a couple, just a couple of quick questions. I'll give you a chance to respond in a moment. Number one, how much is the godlessness of the world around you rubbed off on you? If God were to describe you today, would he say this person is, was a, is a just person, perfect in all of his or her generations, and he walked with me? Is that how God could describe you today? Or has the influence been in the opposite direction? Are you going through the world so stained by everything around you that you've begun, you've begun to accept the world's idea of morality, the world's idea of right and wrong, and, you, and, you, and that has started to creep in, into your life. I sat next to a man yesterday in a wedding reception, and uh, he just said, I, I, was, I appreciated the way you shared what marriage is from the Bible. And he, was, he, he started uh, to tell me and, about how his church, how they've changed their view of morality. And, and, uh, and he said, they're just, whatever the world tells us is right and wrong, that's what our church members are starting to believe. It's sad, isn't it? But is that you? Are you allowing the godlessness of the world to influence you and the way you think and the way you act? Or are you out there being an influence in the world, showing them that that there's a God who has a moral compass for us in his word? Second question I want to ask is, are you afraid of the, the godless world around you. See, that's the exact opposite end of the, sp- of the spectrum. On one end, sometimes we tend to just get involved in the world and we start, and we start getting to influenced by the world. But on the exact opposite end of the spectrum, uh, sometimes we get afraid of the world and we start to think, this is out of control. Anyone ever, if you, if you watch CNN and Fox, you think the world is out of control? Anyone else feel that way sometimes? So let me, everyone who's of, of voting age from it, just raise your hand, all right? You guys, I want, you, I want you to pay attention. Right now, guess what? If your hope is in either of those political candidates, then that shows your hope was never in the right place to begin with. Your hope should be in God. Right? And, and now I'm not, again, I, I vote your conscience, right? I'm not going to tell you who you should or should not vote for, but I will say this. Uh, vote, vote your conscience. Get involved because it's a liberty that God has allowed us to have and we should take advantage of that, right? But at the same time, don't put your hope in it to where if you feel like if your candidate doesn't win, then boy, we are in a, a big mess of trouble. Guess what? We're all, the world is in a big mess of trouble. We already know that, right? We know how it goes. But realize that you don't have to be a part of the, of, of the world and the culture. You don't have to be outside the boat. We're inside the boat. Right? That if, if you follow who, who we are in, this, in the story, if you're a believer, then you're, you're, you are analogously speaking, we're in the boat. We have salvation. And, and, I'll, and I'll tell you, we ought not put all of our trust in all of those things. Because you know what? What's going to happen is going to happen, and yet God has called us. All it should do for us is tell us what the condition of our culture is and how we should be even more motivated to do what we're called to do here. Amen? 
God has called us to, here to this earth to have an influence in this world, and that's what we ought to do. So are you afraid of the godless world around you, or have you put your faith completely in him? He said, Lord, you tell me what to do, and I'll do it. You tell me to do something strange, I'll do that too, whatever it might be. And God has called us to be a strange people, a peculiar people, he says in his word. Noah is a hero of that kind of faith because he completely trusted God. He built an ark to house enough animals to repopulate the earth, and he waited for a flood that he only knew was coming because God told him so. That is true faith. And so in a moment, I'd like to, to ask you to respond. And in a moment, we're going we're gonna to sing a song, Come Just As You Are. And I want to tell you, if you would say, Pastor Dave, I believe in God, but I have allowed some of the godlessness of the world to have an influence in me. And I'm just going to invite you to come up when we, when we sing. Just come forward and you pray to the Lord. It's not between you and me and, and God. It's between you and God. Or you might say, you know what, Pastor Dave? If I'm honest, I've lost a little bit of that hope. And I have forgotten, and I've put my, my thoughts in the world around me, and I've forgotten the ark. I've forgotten how God has is, is, is promised to take care of me, and I have an eternity to look forward to in heaven with him. And just come forward, and between you and God, just make that, that a, a prayer of surrender, and you can cast your cares to the Lord. And, uh, and so I would invite you to do that. And I would also invite anyone that would say, Pastor Dave, if I'm honest in this story, I'm one of the people outside the boat. I'm godless. But I want to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior today. And if that's you, then I would invite you to go to the back. We have men and women. They have a little lanyard. You'll see them. It just says, ask me. And they can show you from God's word how you could know for sure you have eternal life. And imagine how the people on the earth felt when the rains did come and the boat was already shut up. They were unable to get in. And I'm telling you right now, you can get in because God has provided a way. And that way comes right down to what the entire chapter of Hebrews is about. Faith. Faith. You can't earn it. You can't deserve to be on the boat. It's putting your trust in what God said and putting your trust in the fact that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. I don't want anyone here to leave here without knowing that for sure. So if the Lord's working in your heart in any of these ways, then I would just invite you to come as we sing in just a moment and commit that to the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for giving us examples like Noah, who's like us in many ways. He had failures, but yet when push came to shove, he trusted completely in you. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray that today would be that day. But Lord, I also know that there's many of us, if we're honest, we've lost hope, and we need to come forward as well. We need to get on our knees and say, Lord, I am no longer going to trust in the things around me. I'm not going to trust in the world around me, but I'm going to trust in you. And that regardless of, of what punishments you might even inflict on our own culture, Lord, we'll, we'll suffer through that, knowing that we have in eternity with you. And Lord, there may be some in here too that just, they, they've been living in the world and starting to look like they're of the world. Maybe there's some sins that the Holy Spirit's working in someone's heart right now. I just pray, Lord, that we would walk out of here with every sin confessed and with complete hope. 
I pray this in Christ's name.